All right, welcome back. Political theory and um, other stuff. Uh, we are doing another Marx Corner. This is episode three of um, Capital Volume One. We are in the introduction at the part three of the introduction. So it's episode three, part three of the introduction. Um, all right, how are you doing, Paul? Doing good. Doing good. Good. Just excited. All right. So since this is a uh, a Marx Corner thing, I am going to talk about something not really kind of related, kind of not. Before we get started, I uh, was talking to our friend Chris last night on the phone, and um, we were talking about some stuff. And I think um, I want to, for me personally, I want to uh, kind of set the the record straight on a couple of things in the past here we've talked about how that we uh, that this is about learning and growth and that we're open to um hearing if we're wrong and we're open to changing our opinions and our positions on cert on things and um although i i still agree with that sentiment i do want to make it clear that there's um some stuff that uh, i'm not willing to move on and and some of those things are like um i believe that all humans should be treated with dignity and respect and should be given the uh what they need to be able to to live at the very least if not flourish and that includes like food um shelter healthcare clothing education you know i also will not budge on um rejecting the idea that there is a hierarchy between groups of people like, I don't think um, that I'm ever going to be okay with, or I know I will not ever be okay with the idea of like, oh, well, LGBTQ plus people are just like mentally ill and they're degen degenerates, right? Yeah, I just didn't want it to make it sound like uh, there aren't some like, I don't know, axioms or presuppositions I have that I, I won't move on, if that makes sense. Yeah, for me, I have like base results that i want to see i.e what you were talking about like i think i think when any standard human talks about what a, a good stint life is like what you should have to have that i think everybody should have access to that i don't think that should be uh limited um i guess where where i'm always open is uh how we get there i highly doubt that you could ever convince me that capitalism is the actual path there uh, or, you know, uh, authoritarianism or shit like that. But I can't 100% say that I could never be shown some sort of light or uh, have some revelation that just wasn't available to me. Once again, with the end goal being like, you won't convince me that capitalism is right because the real nature of human is that shitty ones just have shitty lives and good like that. I'll never buy into that shit. But I will, uh, I'm always open to how we can get to those end goals and i have a feeling i know i in my head i have things that i think would work better to achieve those goals um and i would say obviously having not read capital that i can uh agree with a lot of the things i've been told marx has said in these books mm -hmm. totally totally and that that reminds me uh chris said uh i was talking to him about you and i reading capital and he's like i'm so glad you guys are reading that and he's like you know, he's like, I can't tell you how many times recently I've seen on Twitter people saying, he's like, and I've come across multiple people saying that um, that Marx said that communism was the idea of uh, people, democracy in the workplace 
and that was it. And he was like, he's like, it just want, I just want to pull my hair out. Uh, he's like, I've, I've, I've read uh, a lot of Marx, and nowhere, anywhere in there does it, does it say that it's just like communism equals co-ops, and that's it. <laughs> and he's just like, right. uh, he's like, more than ever, I feel like it's important for people just to fucking read the shit. Rather than saying, oh, Marx said this, Marx said that, when you haven't read the shit, it, just just read the shit. So I'm, I'm glad. You know, the 25 pages of the intro we've read have really laid a foundation that to think that anything about Marx was one-sided or not a large, large data-gathered, overarching economic theory is almost a weird word to use. I'm not even sure an encompassing theory is correct but i mean like what it encompasses to call it an economic theory feels even short right shorting him for what uh uh, what i've been told he has done (laughs) i thought that the subtitle to capital was a critique of political economy maybe but it doesn't say that here it is it It does on the on the uh title page of the book Oh, okay. Oh, yes, it does. Okay. You know, something that uh, David Harvey brings up in his um, podcast lectures from like 09 of volume one is that when um, it says a critique of political economy, what Marx is critiquing is not only is he he's showing how the the system works, but he's also critiquing the idea of a study of economy, at least the way that um, Adam Smith and Ricardo had been doing it. Um, and so yeah. I think that that's, um, like you were saying, Marx is like, no, no, you guys have got to bring more stuff in here. You've got to, um, you know, look at this differently. And I'm not sure if I brought this up last time, but, you know, I'm listening to um, uh, Dead 5,000 Years, you know? And in that, Graver talks about how fucking Adam Smith was like the first dude to talk about how before money, there was a barter system. And he says... That Adam Smith uses the example of Native Americans like trading um, pelts for for food or something, and he's the and Graber's like I can it's like I I won't give um, Adam Smith that hard of a time because you know he's like obviously there wasn't info on um, the the economics of Native American societies um, sitting in in a library in Scotland for him to peruse, but Graber is so frustrated by that because from that economists since then have just like ran with that and every anthropologist and uh, archaeologist that have, has looked in it into it says that there's no evidence absolutely no evidence for a barter society prior to money and yet adam smith basically just made this shit up because it was the only thing he could think of right that would happen before and every economist since then has just ran with it and then i guess modern economists when they get called out by um uh, anthropologists are like yeah, but you haven't you haven't shown evidence that there wasn't a barter uh, civilization prior to money. It's like, dude, that's not how that works. It's not that's yeah. unfalsifiable. What the fuck are you talking about? Anyhow, I just thought that was interesting how Adam Smith can make up something out of whole cloth, and because of how venerated he is, um, it persists to this day in certain circles. All right, so um, we're on part three. Paul, do you want to start us off here? Yeah, sure. The plan of capital. Capital was not the result of spontaneous generation, nor was it the product of a sudden interest of Marx in economic problems. Ever since this doctor in philosophy had become a communist in the course of the 1840s under the pressure of current experience with social problems, 
the treatment of wood thieves in the Rhine provinces of Prussia, the uprising of Silesian textile workers, the strikes in England, the class struggle in France. Every sentence in this book makes me realize how little I know. Right. The treatment of wood thieves in the Rhine provinces. I've never even thought about wood thieves in the Rhine provinces, let alone known. They had some historical effect. And I'm sure that uh, that if we looked into it, someone's like written like maybe a whole book on just oh. like that topic. You books. Know? I'm sure yeah. books. Yeah. Once one book's written, somebody's like, well, this book didn't cover it right. quite well enough. Right. They, uh, what a weird perspective to write about these, these wood thieves. Um, or, you know, Silesian textile worker. Uh, I just don't know, is what I'm saying. <laughs> he had turned towards economic studies. But his first encounter with modern political economy, uh, which left its main results in the economic and philosophical manuscripts, the poverty of philosophy, wage labor and capital, and the communist manifesto, was roughly interrupted by the pressure of external events. Participating actively in politics, Marx returned from Paris to Germany at the outbreak of the revolutionary movement in 1848. There, he founded and directed a daily paper. When counter-revolutionary reactions submerged Europe after the revolutions collapsed, he emigrated to London and had to struggle for his livelihood as a journalist. And what's also weird is, like, I know uh, a little bit about that time period, like the 1848 stuff, but they just, it's not that covered, uh, even in, like, post, uh, or, you know, even in secondary education. Right. Like, that part is skimmed over pretty damn quickly. And I think, and I don't know a lot about it either, but I think part of that is because it's so complex there's so many moving parts in so many different areas you know it's the same thing about like well, and um, they just paint them as like losers in a lot of ways right like they're just like look at this stupid shit that happened here right good thing we got didn't deal with that for long right uh it's kind of like how i remember it being studied okay like, you know and just basically uh to talk about historical figures that were involved that would have implications later on as well okay like marks and shit like that um, but to say I have a true knowledge of it, in my defense, I would say because of how it's intentionally taught, perhaps. Yeah, I think these current pressures, together with the burden of emigre politics in London, delayed the possibility of a systematic presentation of his economic theory for a whole decade. Only when, through LaSalle, a publisher, pres- uh, a publisher pressed him to explain his economic ideas in a fully-fledged way did he return to a full-scale encounter with Adam Smith and Malthus, Ricardo and J. Bisset, Simone de Sismondi, and Touc, together with the famous British government blue books, which were to become an invaluable source of factual material about the conditions of British industry, trade, finance, and working class life. The systemic study of economic facts and thoughts about capitalism, resumed by Marx around 1857, produced the following works. A. A first rough draft of capital, published posthumously under the title Grundris der Kritik der Politischen Ökonomie, uh, Foundations of the Critique of Political Economy, written in 1857 through 58. B. The uncompleted book Zur Kritik der Politischen Ökonomie, a contribution to the critique of political economy, published in 1859. I also don't know why I'm reading German words with a French accent, but just deal with it. That reminds me, in high school, you used to do Spanish with an Italian accent. <laughs> yeah. I just, I, I'll never forget you just being like, Manana, and I'm just like, uh, I'm like what the fuck? <laughs> uh, it's fun. My favorite, and this, please take this out, is to do German with a Japanese accent, but um, we don't have Wait. to go into it. I don't remember you ever doing that. 
What does it sound uh, like? This was it was later on in life. Uh, <laughs> I should uh, go. I just um, one of the kids I hung out with uh, in Germany grew up in Japan, mm. like military style. Okay, and so he spoke Japanese fluently, and uh, it just got him to his core. What I would do. Like he, uh, <laughs> So, oh my god, that's hilarious. Um, <laughs> so I probably got it in my head that it's funnier than it ever was. Cause you just like die. Right, right. Uh, people's reactions to your humor does shape uh, how you perceive your jokes, yeah, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, exactly. Oh god, yeah. Oh god, yeah. That's why you should strive to have some people who don't find you funny. Right. Um, or you can get stuck in some pretty annoying loops. Yep. Holy shit. Yep. Uh, C. The 1861 through 63 manuscripts, 23 enormous notebooks from which Kautsky extracted theories of surplus value, also known as Volume 4 of Capital. This, however, encompasses only notebooks 11 through 15 inclusive. Notebooks 1 through 5 deal with matters generally encompassed in Capital Volume 1. Uh, notebooks tw- 16 uh 17 and 18 deal with matters in capital volume 3 notebooks uh 19 through 23 again deal with matters related to capital volume 1 and include a lengthy treatment of the history of techniques and the use of machines under capitalism d a manuscript of 1864 through 5 mostly dealing with matters taken up in capital volume 3 e Four manuscripts written between 1865 and 1870, from which Engels extracted most of the material for Capital Volume 2. And F, the final version of Capital Volume 1, written in 1866 and 67. It's just crazy that the, the Civil War, the U.S. Civil War, had like, um, yeah. was like concluding, you know. Um, so, and just also the amount of writing that he was doing. And not just like, you know, writing about his day, you know, like I feel I feel notebooks up, but it's like, oh, my grandmother and I went to the store and I bought a new mouse and the weather was nice. But he's like writing some like crazy shit, like some dense, heavy shit uh, and just filling notebook after notebook. Anyhow, of the six basic economic writings of the mature marks of the mature marks. Volume 1 is therefore the only one which the author completed and edited himself, and of which he even made available corrected editions in German and in French. Volumes 2 and 3 of Capital, left unfinished, were posthumously and laboriously published by Marx's long life, lifelong friend, Frederick Engels. Theories of Surplus Value was rearranged and published by, uh, how do you say the guy's name? Kautsky. Kautsky. Okay. Kautsky. Kautsky. Okay. And the Grundrisse. What is that? I always hear it and I always forget it. The, I don't know. The Grundrisse. Yeah. The Grundrisse was uh, presented to the pub, the public for the first time only in 1939. A considerable part of the 1861-63 manuscripts still remain unpublished. I don't, but this was published long enough ago that um that's probably changed or maybe not i don't know uh this this edition was first published in 1976 so who knows the initial plan of capital was drawn up in 1857 the final plan dates from 1865 between or 1865 to 1866 between these two dates 
there lay nine years of intense study, especially in the British Museum, realized under very difficult circumstances. Marx was burdened by constant uh, financial troubles, by the illness and death of three of his children, among them his beloved son, Edgar, uh, and by his growing reinvolvement in current political and social studies, especially through his activity in the International Working Men's Association, the so-called First International. But did he beat Sekiro? <laughs> you right? Right? <laughs> Seriously, dude. God damn. Um, <laughs> the need to address a sharp and slanderous attack by a German political opponent, a certain Hervog... Herr Volkt. Her, Herr Volkt. Herr is kind of like Mr. or it's like a... Okay. Okay. Uh, the, uh, like, this is F. Laban. Okay. Is, uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, cost marks nearly half a year's delay in production of Capital Volume 1. So that's like... Dude. He, so he was kind of like... He was like uh, debating dudes on, like, Twitter and Reddit. Yes. Yeah. What and was also, going on there. Like, I'm sure it was good at the time, but fuck these people who delayed him from doing his important shit. Right. Like, totally. Dude, Ehrvogt, I don't know who you are. Yeah. Fuck you. Get out of here. Just all anybody knows is that your slanderous attack delayed Marx from doing real shit. Yep. Get the fuck out Get of here. Get the fuck out of here. Okay. It's like the Shapiro of his time. Right, right. I'm sure. He himself spoke sarcastically of his carbuncles. I don't know what that is, Paul. It's a cool word, though. <laughs> I like it. Carbuncles. A severe abscess or multiple boil in the skin. Oh, bummer. I'm sorry, dude. Yeah. Right. As, are these... Okay. But these are sarcastic carbuncles. Oh, so these are just people that are bothering him. Yeah. Um. Yeah. That are... that are. I like that. Okay. I like okay. that. Okay, yeah. I like that Okay, lot. so like... So yeah, so these people that are like tweeting at him are like the carbuncles. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So like... um. AOC's uh, carbuncle would be like Ben Shapiro. Ben Shapiro, right. Okay, exactly. okay. Exactly. Although, unfortunately, I feel like in this day and age, that word's probably been more co-opted by people like Ben Shapiro. Right. I can just picture him with a fedora being like, these fucking carbuncles. Right. Minus the fucking and whatever. It's his sort of word. <laughs> the effects of which the bourgeoisie, the bourgeoisie would, would not forget for a long time. But, in fact, it is his strikingly doical attitude towards all the miseries surrounding him, rather than any specific bitterness born from material hardship that permeates his uh, mature work. From the beginning, Marx wanted to present an all-around analysis of capitalism in its totality. The initial plan of capital already bears witness to this intention and reads as follows. Capital volume one would be A, capital in general, one, Process of production of capital. Two, process of circulation of capital. Three, profit and interest. B, on competition. C, on credit. D, on joint stock companies. Volume two, on landed property. Uh, volume or three, volume on wage labor. Four, volume on the state. Five, volume on international trade. Six, volume on the world market and crises. The 1865-66 version of Capital, however, falls into four volumes. Uh, volume 1, Process of Production of cap Capital. 2, Process of Circulation of Capital. 3, Forms of Process in its Totality. 4, History of the Theory. 
Roman Rodolski, or Rodolski. Rodolski, who has made the most extensive study to date of this uh, problem, has isolated no less than 14 different versions of the plan for capital between September of 1857 and April 1868. Two questions are raised by these changes. First, why did Marx modify his initial plan, and what implications do the modifications have for an understanding of Marx's method and for the content of capital? Second, does the 1865-66 version imply that the four volumes which we possess today present the full, although in the case of all save the first unedited, work as finally intended by Marx? The answer to each of these questions has many interesting implications both for the discussion of Marx's economic theory itself and for the light it it throws on the contributions made by some of his gifted followers and disciples. In fact, what we today call capital is the third attempt by Marx to present his views on the capitalist mode of production uh, in its totality. Uh, the first attempt, the Grundris of 1857-8, through 8, follows the exactly the initial plan of capital, but stops at point 1A, 3 of that plan, which is... Profit and interest. Okay. Uh, the second attempt, dating from 1861 through 3, is still unpublished, except for the part on theories of surplus value. The third attempt is 1865 through 6, 1, of which we have volumes 1 through 4. We know that as early as January 1863, Marx had already decided to deal with land rent as an element of distribution of total surplus value among different sectors and of the ruling classes. However, he still seemed to stick at that time to a separate volume on wage labor, a separate volume on landed property, and separate volumes on credit, competition, and joint stock companies. The logic of this plan implied the desire to deal with the basic social classes of bourgeois society in a separate way. First the industrial capitalists, then the landowners, finally the proletariat. It implied also the desire to separate sharply the problems of production of value, surplus value, and capital from the problems of capitalist competition which can only be understood as arising out of processes of redistribution of previously produced surplus value. Uh, it seems like maybe he just wanted people to understand things were connected and was afraid that if he separated certain things, that they would separate them in their heads when really he wants them to understand, like, okay, this is part of the picture. I have no idea, though. Obviously, uh, the guy who wrote this has a million times more. All right. However... If the original plan was clearly a necessary stepping stone towards the final analysis of capitalist mode of production, as Marx's analysis progressed, it proved itself increasingly an obstacle to a rigorous and consistent expose of the laws of that mode of production. It had, therefore, to be discarded in the end. The volume on wage labor became integrated into volume one, the process of production of capital. It appeared impossible to deal with wage labor separately and apart from the production of surplus value. That is from the capitalist process of production. Marx probably intended to deal with the, the fluctuations of wage in volume six on the world market and crises. The volume on landed property became integrated together with those on profit and interest on competition and on joint stock companies into new volume three which examines key forms 
of the capitalist mode of production in its totality. From the point of view of redistribution of the total surplus value produced among various sectors of the propertied class. Looking at the transformation of the initial plan of capital, we can, however, also understand that uh, what did not change. Volume 1 and 2 of capital can still be subsumed under the heading of capital in general. Only three, like the original uh, plan 4, 5, and 6, which were never written, falls under the heading of many capitals. This this means concretely that a certain number of problems such as, for instance, the problem of the original and or mechanics of the trade cycle of capitalist cries over overproduction have no place in volume one and two can be dealt with only when uh, one descends from the highest level of abstraction where capital is um, dealt with in its global uh, relationship with wage labor to an examination of the interactions of various capitals upon each other. Because she did not take this specific structure of the successive volumes of capital in into account, Rosa Luxemburg was methodologically mistaken in accusing Marx of having constructed his reproduction schemes of volume two without solving the realization problem or without formulating a theory of crisis. I shall return to the interest, interesting problem in my introduction to Capital Volume 2. Um, can you do a little bit for me? Yeah, I sure will. This is all super interesting, but I also feel like it would be information that I would enjoy a lot more. After, after reading yes, Capital? Yes, yes, A lot of this is just like, oh, very yep. interesting yep. to tell me why I should be even more confused yep. about what I'm about to read. Right. Well, and I was, I was going to say, too, um, I'm uh, like, uh, and we could talk about this, but, uh, you know, if the rest of the introductions are seem more like stuff that would be more interesting afterwards. I have read it, um, not saying that I memorized it, um, but I do, I honestly... Uh, am having us do it because I think it will prep us a lot for what's coming. Okay. This shit's pretty boring, but even like the chapter, the two parts before this, I honestly really enjoyed. This is the first one where I'm just like, this is a slog of information that I already can tell if we hadn't recorded, I wouldn't even remember by the time I started reading the book. Right. And even though we recorded, I still won't. A similar mistake is made by Joan Robinson in her preface to the second edition of an essay on Marxian econ economics, where she construes a contradiction between the assumptions regarding real wages of Capital Volume 1 and those of Volume 3. In Volume 1, she says, Marx assumes that a rising labor productivity leads to a rising rate of exploitation, whereas in Volume 3, he assumes that rising labor productivity could lead, through a stable rate of exploitation, to a rising rate of real wages and a declining rate of profit. Well, that's never going to happen. Uh, Joan Robinson does not understand that Volumes 1 and 3 of Capital are at different levels of abstraction, deal with different questions, and make different assumptions in order to clarify the specific dynamics which allows answers to these questions. In Volume 1, Marx examines the relations between capital and labor in general, abstracting from the effects of competition between capitalists on the distribution of surplus value and on the variations of real wages. He therefore assumes initially stable real subsistence wages in order to show through what mechanics surplus value is produced, appropriated, and increased by capital. 
In volume three, he examines the effects of capitalist competition among the distribution or upon the distribution and redistribution of surplus value among capitalists, and therefore has to integrate into the analysis the effects of this competition on the rate of exploitation, for example, in periods of boom with a high level of employment. In order to work out the basic answers to these questions, it is perfectly logical to abstract initially from fluctuations in the rate of profit and wages in Volume 1, and to assume initially a stable rate of exploitation in Volume 3, but sub subsequently to abandon these simplifying hypotheses, Volume 1, Chapter 17, Volume 3, Chapter 14. Damn, Joan Robinson, you just got called the fuck out. <laughs> Finally, it seems clear from many remarks interspersed throughout the manuscript of Volume 3 that Marx maintained his intention of completing capital with volumes on the state, foreign trade, the world market, and crises, although he placed these problems clearly outside the final plan of capital itself. Only when the unpublished manuscript of 1861-3 through becomes available will we know whether some rough draft of what he intended to develop in these three books does indeed exist somewhere or whether it was intended as a completely new and further development of his study of bourgeois society. So it will become available. I'm curious if it's available now. And if not, it's pretty small. It's pretty slow timeline. <laughs> like, seriously, what's going on with this unpublished manuscript? I know. Like when this was written, 130 years. At this point, almost 160 years. So. Oh, well, maybe people didn't even know about it until after his death, you know? Yeah, what are those Bible books? Dead Sea Scrolls. Yeah. It's just the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Marx. Marx. Yeah. 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 Exactly. In in view of these changes in the in the plan of capital as a whole, the final version of the plan of volume one is all the more striking. We should not forget that volume one, as edited by Marx, is largely posterior to the original and incomplete drafts of two or volume two and three. Later in uh, uh, later to be edited by Engels. It is therefore volume one which allows us to allows us the best insight for Marx's view of capitalism. From the the place of volume one in the total final plan of capital, we can immediately draw an answer to to misconceptions which uh, occur again and again in discussion of Marx's economic theory. It is true that that according to Marx and Engels, capitalists do not exchange the commodities they own on the basis of their value. Whereas under petty commodity production, exchange of the commodities is roughly based upon their value. But it does not follow at all that capital volume one, which assumes the exchange of commodities according to their value, is concerned with pre-capitalist commodity production and exchange. And that only in volume three do we start to examine what capitalist commodity circulation uh, is all about. On the contrary, Marx abstracts from the problem of the distribution of surplus value among competing capitalists. That is the problem of the equalization of the rate of profit in volume one precisely in order to isolate and demonstrate the laws of capitalist commodity production and circulation in their purest, most fundamental way. In the same way, it is wrong to assume that Volume 1 deals only with the essence or with abstractions, whereas concrete capitalism is analyzed only in Volume 3. Nothing would be more concrete, could be more concrete and closer to immediately perceived economic data, in quotes and parentheses, appearances, 
than the analysis of the working day, of wages, and of machinery in Volume 1. Commentators here confuse the type of question solved in Volume 1 with the method of answering. Volume 1 abstracts from capitalist competition, from uneven and combined development, and therefore from prices of production and equalization of the rate of profit, and even more from market prices. In order to reveal the basic origin of surplus value in the process of production, which is a process of consumption of labor power by capital. But this problem is dealt with by a combination of theoretical insight and empirical verification, by a constant attempt to discover the mediating links between essence and appearance, by a thorough analysis of how and why the essence, the value of labor power, is manifesting itself through the appearances, the fluctuations of real wages. All right. Okay. That's another one down. Another one down. Yes. Um, next, uh, next time. Think about where we'll be at in life when we finish this. I know. Well, I, you know, I know it's so funny. I was talking, Chris last night was like, Hey, when you, when you and Paul are done with, uh, chapters one through three, like, I'm so excited to come on and talk to you guys. I was like, okay, but what you have to realize is right now we do maybe marks once a week. So we're talking yeah. like five, six months from now. And he was yeah. like, yeah, dude, I, I'm no hurry, no hurry. It's like, all right, dude, whatever, you know. I would like to no, get done. You could have children by the time we're done with this, you know. Yeah. I'm excited. It's like a, it's like an epic journey. It is. It is. It is. Um, anyhow, uh, yeah, I, I look forward to uh, next time we will be doing um, uh, part four, the plan of volume one, page 32. Awesome. Have a good day.